0: This is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. There would be no Roman Empire, and certainly no Constantinople, if Rome had lost the Punic Wars. You could well say there would be no Byzantium without Hannibal. So let's enjoy A History of Hannibal, episode 22, Treacherous. After a three-day march from the events we spoke of last week, Celtic envoys came to Hannibal and told him they had learned from the lessons of their fellow Gauls. They had no desire to come into conflict with the Carthaginians. They would be his friends. They would be quite happy to offer him guides, hostages, and supplies. Everything was hunky-dory, or was it? Hannibal was a clever man, and he suspected that this was too good to be true. He didn't want to offend these people, and dismiss the offer out of hand. For one, this would be incredibly rude, and more importantly, it could make them regret offering him this, and turn them towards hostility. He thus accepted their friendly offer, hoping he was just being paranoid, and followed their guides. He didn't completely relax, though. His troops did not march in loose order, as they would have done were they in friendly territory. He marched with the cavalry and elephants at the front of the column, with himself and the best of the infantry at the base. He was fully alert, And he was right to be suspicious. Those were not envoys, but the village elders. The path got narrow. Then the attack came. The Gauls sprung out of their hiding places, attacking from the front and rear, not to mention rolling rocks down the sides of the valley. Hannibal was dealing with the worst of it at the rear of the column, His deployment of troops had prevented the situation from becoming a disaster. Hannibal was unsure whether to stay with the infantry or move to the other end and help the cavalry. A moment's hesitation, which allowed the Gauls to deliver a flank attack, dividing the Carthaginian force in two. So things would remain for the night. The next day, the situation improved and Hannibal was able to reunite his two forces and fight off the enemy, who now contented themselves with raids. You may suspect that the title of this episode, Treacherous, is referring to the treacherous Gauls lulling Hannibal into a trap. You would be wrong. This is more a happy coincidence. Coming up with names is one of the most difficult bits of podcasting. I usually come up with the name while writing the episode, but this week, I came up with it on Monday morning on my commute. I'd just been listening to some music, which I have recommended you all as an Amazon recommendation. The new Taylor Swift album, Red. Song three is called, yes, you guessed it, Treacherous. The chorus goes this slope is treacherous, this path is reckless, this slope is treacherous, and I, 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 like it. While referring to falling in love, it struck me very strongly of Hannibal's crossing of the Alps, which will be the topic for the rest of today's episode. Indeed, this episode will be something I rarely do. It will mostly be, an extended quote. I've done this a few times for Alexander, but never on Hannibal. I think this particular passage is excellent, and any attempt to paraphrase it will diminish its excellence. So, I'll stick with the original, or at least my translation of the original. So, Livy. Book twenty-one. Chapter 35 through 38 On the ninth day, the army reached the summit. Most of the climb had been over trackless mountain sides. Frequently, a wrong route was taken. Sometimes through the deliberate deception of the guides, or, again, when some likely-looking valley would be entered by guesswork without knowledge of whither it led. There was a two days' halt on the summit, to rest the men after the exhausting climb and the fighting. Some of the pack animals which had fallen amongst the rocks managed, by following the army's tracks, to find their way into camp. The troops had indeed endured hardships enough, but there was worse to come. It was the season of the setting of the Pleiades. Winter was near, and it began to snow. Getting on the move at dawn, the army struggled slowly forward over snow-covered ground, the hopelessness of utter exhaustion in every face. Seeing their despair, Hannibal rode ahead, and at a point of vantage which offered the prospect of a vast extent of country, he gave the order to halt, pointing to Italy far below and the Po Valley beyond the foothills of the Alps. My men, he said, you are at this moment passing the protective barrier of Italy. Nay, more, you are walking over the very walls of Rome." Henceforth, all will be easy-going. no more hills to climb. After a fight or two, you will have the capital of Italy, the citadel of Rome, in the hollow of your hands. The march continued, more or less without molestation from the natives, who confined themselves to petty raids when they saw a chance of stealing something. Unfortunately, however, as in most parts of the Alps, the descent on the Italian side, being shorter, is correspondingly steeper. The going was much more difficult than it had been during the ascent. The track was almost everywhere, precipitous, narrow, and slippery. It was impossible for a man to keep his feet the least stumble meant a fall, and a fall, a slide, so that there was indescribable confusion, men and beasts stumbling and slipping on top of each other. Soon, they found themselves on the edge of a precipice, a narrow cliff, falling away, so sheer that even a lightly armed soldier could hardly have gone down it, by feeling his way and clinging to such bushes and stumps as presented themselves. It must always have been a most awkward spot, but a recent landslide had covered it, on this occasion, to a perpendicular drop of nearly a thousand feet. On the brink, the cavalry drew rein. Their journey seemed to be over. Hannibal, in the rear, did not yet know what had brought the column to a halt. But when the message was passed to him that there was no possibility of proceeding, he went in person to reconnoitre. It was clear to him that a detour would have to be made, however long it might prove to be, over the trackless and untrodden slopes in the vicinity. But even so he was no luckier. Progress was impossible, for, though there was good foothold in the quite shallow layer of soft, fresh snow which had covered the old snow underneath, nevertheless, as soon as it had been trampled and dispersed by the feet of all those men and animals, there was left to tread upon only the bare ice and liquid slush of melting snow underneath.' The result was a horrible struggle, the ice affording no foothold in any case, and least of all on a steep slope. When a man tried by hands or knees to get on his feet again, even those useless supports slipped from underneath him and let him down. There was no stumps or roots anywhere to afford a purchase to either foot or hand. In short, there was nothing for it but to roll and slither on the smooth ice and melting snow. Sometimes, the mule's weights would drive their hooves through into the lower layer of old snow. They would fall, and once down, lashing savagely out in their struggles to rise, they would break right through it, so that... As often as not, they were held as in a vice by a thick layer of hard ice. When it became apparent that both men and beasts were wearing themselves out to no purpose, a space was cleared with the greatest labour because of the amount of snow to be dug and carried away, and camp was pitched high up on the ridge. The next task was to construct some sort of passable track to the precipice, for by no other route could the army proceed. It was necessary to cut through rock, a problem they solved by the ingenious solution of heat and moisture. Large trees were felled and lopped, and a huge pile of timber erected, this, with the opportune help of a strong wind, was set on fire, and when the rock was sufficiently heated, the men's rations of sour wine were flung upon it, to render it friable. They then got to work with Picts on the heated rock, and opened a sort of zigzag track to minimise the steepness of the descent, and were able, in consequence, to get the pack animals, and even the elephants, down it. Four days were spent in the neighbourhood of this precipice. The animals came near to dying of starvation, for on most of the peaks nothing grows, or if there is any pasture, the snow covers it. Lower down there are sunny hills and valleys and woods with streams flowing by. Country, in fact, more worthy for men to dwell in. There the beasts were put to pasture and the troops given three days rest to recover from the fatigue of their road building. Thence the descent was continued to the plains, a kindlier region with kindlier inhabitants. The march to Italy was much as I have described it. The army reached the frontier in the fifth month, as some records have it, after leaving New Carthage. The crossing of the Alps took 15 days. There is great difference of opinion about the size of Hannibal's army on his arrival in Italy. The highest puts it at 100,000 infantry and 20,000 cavalry. The lowest, at 20,000 infantry, and 6,000 cavalry. I should myself be most inclined to accept the statement of Lucius Kincius Alimentus, who mentions in his account that he was taken prisoner by Hannibal. If only he did not confuse the issue by the addition of Gallic and Ligurian troops. These included, he puts the total numbers of the army led into Italy by Hannibal at 80,000 infantry and 10,000 cavalry. But I think it is more likely, and some writers support my view, that the Gauls and Ligurians joined voluntarily later. Alimentus further states that he lost 36,000 men and an enormous number of horses and pack animals, having descended into Italy by way of the Ligurian Tarini, on the borders of Gallic territory. So, it is the late October of 218 BC, and Hannibal has crossed the Alps, and we are getting very close to our first big battle of the war, the Battle of the Trebia a good place to end the show for this week. If you've enjoyed the show, you can find us online in all the usual places. thehistoryofpodcast.blogspot.com facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast twitter.com forward slash thehistoryofpod youtube.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast the history of podcast at gmail.com and the History Podcast's Facebook group. Remember, guys, the 25th episode spectacular is coming up, so please send in your questions. I'd like to have them all in by midnight on Monday the 4th of December. But this is a provisional date. No question is too stupid, too trivial. It'll take two seconds to send me an email and you can have your 15 minutes of fame. It's a win for everybody! Also, remember next Sunday, I'm going to be at the Black Swan Inn, York, at 5pm, with Jamie Jeffers of the British History Podcast. It'll be a good time, and I hope to see you there. At the start of the show, you heard Robin Pearson of the podcast The History of Byzantium. Robin has given himself the monumental task of following up Mike Duncan's The History of Rome, which either makes him a genius or a madman, possibly a bit of both. So far, he's done the years after the fall of the West and a tour of the Empire, and he's about to get into Justinian, one of my all-time favourite periods of history. It is good stuff and I highly recommend it. I'll see you next week, when we begin the build-up to the Battle of the Trevia. Thanks for listening.